Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris. Welcome to episode 7 of Sprogcast, a Sprogcast about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com. If you would like to join our sponsorship team, please get in touch via Facebook or Twitter and we can have a conversation about that. My name's Mark Harris and my co-presenter and producer is Karen Hall. Hello, Karen. (laughs) Hi, Mark. It's nice to speak to you today. In this episode, we hear from two student midwives who are both called Natalie, listen to a new mother tell the story of her birth, talk about some of the interesting stuff that's been in the news, and we've got a couple of book reviews as well. But first and foremost, the most important matter that we need to address is, how did Mark keep a straight face the other morning on Radio 4 when Brian Blessed told the story of delivering a baby in Richmond Park and biting through the umbilical cord? And finishing off by licking the baby's face clean. <laughs> the only thing I can, the only thing I can say about uh, Mr. Blessed was um, he was such an open, warm, e- embracing man. And uh, as he told that story, uh, he was patting me on the arm with a twinkle in his eye. I, I can't imagine uh, that he would ever turn his back on someone in need. Uh, but I think he was remembering the story with a a theatrical kind of glint in his eye, Karen, to be honest. It was very funny to listen to. Amazingly funny. I didn't get a chance to uh, to say, you know, if, if anyone else is ever in that position, you know, pr- probably the way to go is to ring the emergency services, yeah. make sure the environment's very as safe as possible, maintain her privacy and dignity, you know, by making sure that there's a few people as possible around, and then just allow the wonder of woman to unfold as she gives birth. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to pull on no baby. You don't have to coach the breathing. Thank God, Karen, breathing doesn't need coaching. I've been able to figure it out all by myself, and I don't have any qualifications. (laughs) Um, Just allow the baby to come, and, and then you know, keep mother and baby warm until the placenta comes. And then when the placenta comes, don't bite the umbilical cord. <laughs> Just, you know, don't. Don't cut it. Don't do anything to it. Leave the baby attached to the placenta and just wrap the baby up close to the mother until the uh, emergency services arrive. And uh, I didn't get a chance to say that that day, but I did on Radio 2 the next day, so managed to clear it up. Yeah, I guess when you're doing the live interviews, it must be, um, I I would find it really hard to um, think fast enough. One of the things I like about doing this is that I can edit us later and make us sound much more intelligent. Um, The the things that, you know, I think once or twice I've phoned you up and said, look, we need to do an extra bit and put it in. Yeah, and you you yeah, can't do right. that. Not when it's live. I, I I think the thing is, you know, I'm often struggling with an, an amygdala response because I'm in a sort of like an alien environment. It's not something that's that's um, uh, old to me. It's not something I uh, have done very very much. So I've got this fight or flight response going on, which is reducing my contact to my forebrain. Well, I hear so many good reports, and people have 
mentioned you to me. <laughs> You're a household name, Mark. <laughs> so one thing I've picked up from your interviews is um, that, that I didn't already know is that midwife is a verb. I'd never really thought about it. Um, so the wife in question isn't the one doing the catching. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've always um, certainly thought that and certainly worked on that as an operating principle. You know, the mid comes from the middle language for uh, the middle English for with and obviously the wife, woman. Um, someone did call into question the etymology of the word. Um, and whether or not that is true to the etymology, it definitely works for me. So it turns uh, midwife into who you're being in that moment. You know, I am being with a woman as she as she births. You know, all, all the power lies inside her, you know. And uh, so it's certainly... Uh, energize my practice over the years believing that well it fits perfectly with your philosophy doesn't it the the idea of being with a woman yeah. um, one of the things that I was discussing um, with my partner when he read your book what he said the book said to him was a, a message about how men could be at a birth um, mm. sort of oh, without all of the kind of problem-solving fix-it approach that yeah. they might feel they should have um, yeah. And I said, but the thing is that the evidence supports having a woman at a birth. It doesn't have to be qualified, don't have to be a midwife or a doula, but having a woman at a birth is associated with a lower rate of intervention and more satisfaction with the experience. Yeah. And Pete said, well, this book is basically telling a man how to be like a woman. I, I, not, I want to disagree with Pete, and I'm glad he, he um, enjoyed the book. Did he finish it? Yeah, he, did. he sat and read it. He sat in the afternoon, and he just read it cover to cover, and he wouldn't go out till he'd finished. And he was going to the pub, so, you know. The book isn't asking him or suggesting that he can be a woman in that context. I, I would hazard a guess that as, as men start to have an experience of the content of the book and find that it increases the connection that they have with their partner, um, that will enhance their relationships generally. I think what he was getting at was that um, the, the aspects of the woman being with the woman that work are the things yeah. that you're encouraging men to kind of get their heads round. Yeah, no, I, 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 that's fair, Pete. Thanks, mate. <laughs> the, the book does have a quite a big, poor, uh, quite a big quote from Maddie's excellent book about doulering and suggests that, you know, that the, the partner's role and the doula, doula role can be uh, complementary. I certainly wouldn't want to diminish the role of woman with woman at the point of birth. But for me, the goal was always enhancing his experience because in, in the years I've been a midwife, it's, it's, a, it's a cliche because it happens so often that, that men have reported all those feelings of, uh, you know, feeling left out, not knowing what to do, feeling completely without power. You know, and it seems to me that the threshold of the birth of a family where he's moving into fatherhood, having a platform of disempowerment and some some have said emasculation doesn't seem to me a great launching pad mm -hmm. uh, into the really challenging role of fathering. And that's what the book was really addressing. Yeah. And so topically, we asked um, 
for help from student midwives because we wanted to get some midwife voices um, on the show, especially now at the sort of start of term when people might just be starting their degrees. Um, And we asked around and a few people got in touch and I've got two interviews for us. The first one is with Natalie Turner, who's just starting her first year of midwifery. Natalie and I'm a first year student midwife at Bradford University. Hi Natalie, thank you for talking to Sprogcast. It's brilliant to have a first year. So have you actually started yet? Has term begun? I have. um, I started on the 14th of September so I'm into my fifth week now. Um, Totally different to what I expected but I'm really enjoying it so far. Great, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Why is it different? Um, I don't think anything can prepare you for going to university. I did, I, before going to university, I did my access, um, but I did that three years ago, so I've kind of been out of it for a little bit. Um, I had a baby, and then I've gone back into education. Obviously, being, I'm a little bit older. I'm 26, uh, but I'm a little bit older than some of the people on my course, so I think going back into education after a while is a bit scary. I'm hoping life experience is going to stand me in good stead a little bit, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> So what have you liked best so far? I love the anatomy and physiology. Love it. I love finding out how things work. Um, it's taken me a little bit more to get used to the society and well-being side of things. I'm quite fact. I like to know facts. Um, so like going out and finding information, I prefer to look into this is why this happens. And like fact, I don't like to, well, what if, what if it were done this way or what if this happened? So I kind of get used to facts a little bit. So I do really enjoy the biology side of it. Right. So the the straightforward facts really kind of satisfying and the more reflective part a bit more challenging. Yeah, I think if it's fact, I, I know it's right. If you find it in a lot, of, a lot of different places saying the same thing, you know you've got it right. Whereas I think with the society and well-being side of it, there's different people have different views of everything and mm. there's nothing set in stone. Yeah. So when do you get your first placement out in the field? We go out the second week of January. Right. Uh, we've already got our placement areas, so we know where we're going to be based. Um, I'm going to the hospital for my first placement. That'll be a little bit totally different to community. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm quite a hands-on person. I like to get to get to do things rather than the theory side of it. So I'm really looking forward to going out into placement. Right, and are you just going to be at births with a qualified midwife? Um, I'm going to an antenatal ward at first. Okay. Um, we don't do labour ward until second year. Um, so first year is a lot of antenatal ward clinics um, and out in the community for first years. Spoke to a few um, second years who in their first year were able to go to home births. If their community midwife was had a, a home birth coming up, then they were able to go to that if they wanted to. Uh, which a lot of people did. So that would be quite nice. That sounds appealing. Yeah, that's it. Cool. So far, it's, I'm, it's all new. So it's quite scary. And getting used to the university as well, because it's massive. Yeah. Um, so okay, trying to find my way around um, is a, has proved a little bit challenging. But no, there's nothing so far that I've not enjoyed. I just, I can't wait to get to learn more. You're so enthusiastic. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read any good books? Um, the last book I read was um, Mark's Men, Love and Birth book, uh, which I reviewed on um, Twitter quite a few times. Uh, that was the last book I read. And before that, I read The Spiritual Midwifery by Anna Mae Gaskin. Yeah. 
um, which I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed that. It was nice. It was nice to go back to basics and yeah. not the medicalized like like a lot of it is now. Um, so it was nice to read something from the from a basic perspective. That gives a really good balance if you're doing a lot of the um, more medical focused stuff to just read about normal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like a lot of the textbooks and stuff that we're reading, it's all, it were nice just to read something, just how it should be. It was so nice for women to just be able to go and just do what they wanted to do. Well, that, that's a good recommendation as well, definitely. So is there anything else you want to tell the, the people who listen? Um, one thing that I found was, obviously, I did my access course a few years ago and it yeah. took me three attempts to get into midwifery. Um, but I just think if it's something you really want to do, just just do as much as you can to get there because it's so worth it I just did loads of experience I got lots of experience in the hospital um, I got lots of experience working with charities you've got to kind of think out of the box um, I worked for a charity and I got a lot of my experience from them and it was nothing to do with pregnancy or labour or anything it was working with vulnerable families with with small children I supported a family for about 18 months um, they had newborn twins and then a, a child of three and we we did a lot of things together and it wasn't either it's, a lot of it was, was support but we also did a lot of things with the children just simple things Things like getting her to doctor's appointments and things like that because she yeah. really struggled with three small children um but yeah I think a lot of it it was just building up my skills it was building up my transferable skills and it was showing a commitment and a willingness to dedicate yourself to doing something really useful yeah that's it and I, I did it I enjoyed it I really enjoyed it and it just it just pushed me even more to go and do what I wanted to do brilliant okay thank you for talking to us natalie can we get you to come back sometimes and talk to us again because we want to follow your progress that sounds a bit stalky doesn't it <laughs> no that <I'm> <laughs> to share it with people thank you thanks natalie it's been lovely to talk to you lovely thank you bye bye two natalies that's a bit suspicious yeah no i think they're different is that their real name <laughs> When I had been qualified about four years, I had a student called Maggie. She was um, a mature student and um, she'd never been in the birth room before. I sat back, uh, having met Maggie, a gregarious woman with lots of experience, birth and otherwise, in terms of her own experience. And as she interacted with the woman for, you know, for the first time in that environment as a you know, so-called, as a professional, she danced the dance of being with women in such a way that I, I, I began to get emotional. And, uh, and uh, I don't know whether I did weep, but, but I might have done. Because I realised in that moment that however my skills of being with a woman had developed, you know, upon the platform of a masculine endocrine dance, I would never touch that level of connection. But she left an indelible impression upon me. Okay. Um, thanks for that, Mark. <laughs> Sorry for laughing. I'm completely, obviously, completely just thick-skinned. I'm just giggling. Autism's a bitch. Tell the chicken joke, Mark. I've not been drinking, you know. I don't know where these emotions are coming from. It's Go fine. On. Shall we talk about the news? Right, so we've got some interesting news to talk about with lots of different things. Uh, first yeah. one I'm looking at here is the Royal College of Midwives website um, news announcement. VBAC is clinically safe, says the, what's RCOG? Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists? Yeah, they're the ones with that slightly obscene quote on their wall. Ah, yes, yes. Okay, so the, the people with the quote say... 
that VBAC is clinically safe. So they've done some research that shows a success rate of around 75%. 75% of women that have an initial uh, cesarean section go on to have a vaginal birth. Uh, and they quote 75%. I, 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 it used to be 80%. And if a woman has had um, a vaginal birth, a cesarean section, I think it goes up to 90% of women in that category go on to have a vaginal birth. Right, so that would be like their third baby, presumably. Yeah, yeah. So had, had a vaginal birth, had a cesarean section, go on to have another vaginal birth afterwards. It goes up to 90% in this uh, review of the evidence, which is effectively what it is really, I suppose. Yeah, that that's an interesting little um, Venn diagram of statistics there, because whether it says the sex success rate rises to 85 to 90%, that's more than for first-time mothers. I was discussing this with an associate professor friend of mine only last night over a, a Jack Daniels and his Lager Shandy. And, um, Can you mention their name? It, it, uh, it, was, it was my mate, Dennis Walsh, and, and, and he, he was reminding me, because I there's a part in this green top uh, piece of guidance that suggests that every woman who has a vaginal, who has a, a VBAC, uh, should be continuously monitored you know, uh, cardiotocograph monitored. And um, he was pointing out that the evidence around continuous monitoring um, is, you know, less than unequivocal, uh, to say the least. And he, he quoted this from the Cochrane Review of 2014. And um, he said that if every woman was continuously monitored, right, we would, uh, we would prevent about one in 660 babies from having neonatal seizures. Now, these neonatal seizures, you know, often go on to have no consequence. So you, you would save uh, one neonatal seizure in 660 births. Right. If you monitor every woman. But this is the trade-off. If you monitor every woman, one in 56 women will have an unnecessary cesarean section. That's quite a lot higher than the seizures you're saving. And for me, it points to uh, a discussion about the context of how we discuss risk uh, in maternity services, probably everywhere. We have this kind of Im uh, this kind of illusory goal that we can achieve zero risk. And if that's your assumptive goal, um, it kind of changes your perspective on what needs to be done. And I think this is very important when we're talking about VBAC, to be honest. And we um, mentioned this as well, I think, when we were in episode four with Rebecca Schiller, that, that risk can't be reduced to zero. Uh, absolutely. And Rebecca Schiller's interview is a must listen to if people haven't listened to it. I've talked to women who've had a cesarean and it their experience appears to be that consultants are encouraging them not to bother trying for a VBAC. Given those statistics, you would have thought um, doctors would be in a position where they were actively encouraging uh, women uh, to make that choice. And I did have a phone call from a woman th uh, this week um, who wants an elective caesarean section very strongly uh, for her own reasons you know she she spoke to the consultant about it and the consultant just said yeah okay and she said she'd been to my website and she said i noticed that you don't talk about cesarean section at all 
She said, so I want to talk to you. Tell me, why shouldn't I have a cesarean section? I want it to be a powerful choice based on looking at all the arguments. And it kind of shocked me a bit that she wasn't offered those kind of areas to, to think about. And for me, it brought up stuff like uh, issues around the mi microbiome and vaginal birth, issues around the squeeze that the baby gets as the baby comes through the, the vagina, which probably enhances fluid being released from the lungs, you know, being taken out of the lungs. And the fact that being exposed to, well, not being exposed to oxytocin through the birthing process may have implications for connection to the baby and breastfeeding. But it just, it just was surprised me. That, and, and she said that actually other birth professionals, community midwives and stuff, hadn't been very quick to offer those kinds of uh, areas for her to think about so that she could make a more informed choice. You'd have thought that that would have been quite core. And do you think that's purely a time thing? Like, well, she knows what she wants, we don't need to discuss it. Or is it that um, they're so determined to be woman-centred that they're not interested in, in trying to help her to make a more informed decision? It's it's maybe a combination of the two. I, I said to her, look, you know, in my early years as a midwife, I was supporting women like you because they would find it very, very difficult to get what they wished. And the opposite was true. So in one way, it, it marked a, a bit yeah. of a shift that might well be very, very positive. In the other way, in the other sense, you know, and I get your point about time constraints. Um, I, I think some of these issues being uh, spoken about with a woman is really important to them making a, as fully informed choice as is possible to make. So that's the RCOG's birth after previous cesarean birth green top guideline number 45 published on the 1st of October. Um, interesting stuff. It will be um, really interesting to see how that's applied. Can we talk about womb transplants? Yeah. Well, I have really conflicting feelings about this. I'm trying to figure out for myself how I feel about um, what at what point do we hold our hands up and say, OK, nature, you win. This woman does not have the physical ability to to carry and birth her own baby obviously in this it, it actually is the case that science wins because it is possible to transplant a womb into a woman and then she can carry and birth a baby i mean i know ivf has its risks and then yeah. on top of that you are having an organ put into your body that your body might reject you're having several major operations because it's taken out yeah. afterwards. Yeah, reading. so you're, you're having it put in, you're having the baby um, by cesarean and then you're having it removed. Um, you, you're allowed to try for two pregnancies before it's removed. We were talking about the Equality Act yesterday um, on my, at my university course and how it it's basically says that everybody should be allowed to have the same opportunities, the same chances. Yeah. And this is, is saying that, you know, a, a woman who can't have a baby should have the chance to have a baby. It just seems yeah. such a, a huge thing to go through. It scares me, I guess. I uh, know I get that. And um, I think, you know, I'm so into evolutionary biology at the moment and eth ethnology um, because in the context of birth, it, it, it's a great frame of reference to be encouraging trust in a, an evolutionary process that's worked for many, many millions of years. But I think sometimes when we talk about evolutionary adaptations and stuff, we almost uh, anthropomorphize evolution or, or we kind of give evolution a purpose and sort of like it's kind of endowed with some kind of 
destiny inside of it. And I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm quite convinced that's not true. So it, evolution is not necessarily infallible, is it? And I remember a, a study uh, done on a certain type of beetle in Australia that was going extinct. And they couldn't work out why. And then they discovered that the glass bottles that were being thrown away uh, resembled the colour of the beetle and was therefore being mistaken by the male beetle for a, for a female of the species. And they were mating with, trying to mate with brown beer bottles. Silly beetles. And um, so that kind of evolutionary adaptive behaviour in the beetle wasn't going to work for that beetle unless uh, Australia changed the, the colour of their bottles. And that's what they did. <laughs> I know, I know. But what it does point to, it points to the fact that evolution is not necessarily infallible. But that's not evolution the other thing, failing. That's evolution doing exactly what it does. E evolution d isn't a guarantee oh, that every comment. species will live forever. I do take that. And I like that about you, Karen. <laughs> but I think sometimes as a human being, we take ourselves outside of, we, we take ourselves in our thinking outside of the evolutionary yes, model. I agree with that. And, and and we forget that we that we we don't come to the planet we come from the planet we we you know you cannot take us out of our environment we are an intrinsic part of this evolutionary process and and how we're evolving in terms of our ability to have understandings and to do a womb transplant is part of that process we're not separate from it I, I don't think the evolutionary process is infallible. Although we suffer hubris if we try to intervene in it without thought. An understanding of evolution over time in terms of our biological development uh, leads to implicit faith in the process when it comes to birth. But I, I take your point earlier um, that the illustration with the beetle is actually evolution working. But it, it's it's a really good illustration because it's um, here's something where um, a man-made thing is affecting the way a species develops. Well, here's another thing where a man-made thing, the womb transplant, is affecting the way a species develops because before Absolutely. this was possible, those women would have had to find some other way to be mothers. Yeah. And, and those other ways exist. And now there's this, which is also a way. To me, that uh, reminds me of the discussion around epigenetics. You know, the fact that we're increasing our use of synthetic syntocinon may well have effect in, uh, have the effect of turning off that part of the, the, the genome. Is that right? Another interesting um, similar point that we have absolutely no idea of the effect of where um, women who have been formula fed themselves then go on to breastfeed. Yeah. Is there any difference? Very interesting. And, and that that kind of leads nicely on to the next study, Karen. So this is a, an interesting one. Um, breastfeeding and IQ growth from toddlerhood through adolescence. Um, it's published on um do we call that plos or plos it's a you talk you always make me do the breastfeeding ones the study did follow i think it was eleven thousand five hundred and eighty two children so the size of the study is quite big and i think in shorthand it, it shows that after the age of two the iqs of children uh, are no different whether you're breastfed or formula fed right in a nutshell i think that's what's going going on here spot any flaws well yeah there's always flaws in research the iq tests were performed and conducted by parents right so i think that introduces 
a, a massive variable that isn't, isn't highlighted particularly. You know, when my little girl started to feed herself, she was about three. A bit, no, she was before that. And I remember sitting there with a bowl of stuff and she picked something up and splattered it on her forehead, you know. And me and my late wife were sitting there with gleeful faces shouting, she's feeding herself, she's feeding herself. <laughs> Actually, she was splattering her food all over her face. So I, I do wonder whether this variable of parents conducting the IQ tests is, is a, a major flaw. <laughs> Yeah. The source of this data is the Twins Early Development Study, which I'm sure is a great study. Yeah, me too. To me, whether breastfeeding leads to more intelligent children is the kind of question that you're never going to be able to show very close correlation with because of oh, the massive amount of variables. Too many variables. Yeah, yes. so, socioeconomic group of those doing the feeding. No mention in this study, as far as I could tell from reading it, in, uh, whether the longevity of breastfeeding was was discussed, you know, how long did well, breastfeeding... Well, actually, we do have that information. Does it? Yes. Oh, that's my point um, reading. Go on. 62% of the babies were breastfed for an average of four months. Now, it doesn't say exclusively breastfed for an average of four months. And what we do know is, well, what we can speculate, I think, is that in, in the 90s, um, twins be, may not be the kind of norm condition yeah fair, fair point so twins are going to likely be born prematurely yeah the rates of breastfeeding in the 90s were pretty low yeah people were still being advised to introduce solids at quite an early age yeah. um, so it is it, it isn't helpful to just have one category that is breastfed where that could be people uh, babies who are breastfed for one week yeah. and babies who are breastfed for one year you can't we weight that a equally and so i think that this doesn't really give us generalizable results no and and it, you know it's it's worth a read it's um it's good for certainly we're focusing on students uh in this edition and it's it's certainly good to critique um because it will it will lead to lots of thinking around um the limitations of research when it comes to coming yeah. to evidence well the trouble with this kind of research is if you only read the abstract abstract and the headline uh, suddenly people are saying oh well it's been proven that breastfeeding doesn't impact um in you know increased intelligence well it hasn't by that study has it and i've had that said to me in an antenatal class in the last couple of weeks yeah, exactly. so somebody said well it says in the news that breastfeeding doesn't make any difference to iq what this study actually says if you look at the results having been breastfed was associated with a small yet significant advantage in iq at age two in girls yes Okay, so why girls? We don't know. We'd like to unpick it a bit further. Yeah. But that said, small yet significant advantage. And yet the conclusions, and this is what's been written by the authors of the study, yeah. the conclusion is breastfeeding has little benefit for early life intelligence mm -hmm. and cognitive growth from toddlerhood through adolescence. Yeah. That's not what their results said. You can't separate the research findings from those that are doing the research. Good, a, a good study to read, yeah. uh, some, some good points to pay attention to. Uh, but not yeah. to be reported as a headline. So the last thing we've got today is this this study that says perceptions of fetal size influence interventions in pregnancy, um, a study from Boston University released on the 8th of October, um, basically saying if you're told you've got a big baby, then you are likely to experience intervention during the birth. Yeah. I, I, you know, as long as I've been a midwife, we've had discussions around uh, 
estimating fetal weights through scanning. And I don't think the evidence has changed much. You know, an early scan, the earlier the scan, the more predictive that scan is of gestational age. And, you know, therefore, the earlier the scan, um, the closer the correlation is with the actual weight of the baby. Well, that's interesting. But I remember reading that around about term, uh, scanning can be a pound and a half wrong either way. Wow, no, I didn't know that and I haven't spotted that in here. But I just find it utterly fascinating that only um, one fifth of mums who've been told that their babies are large actually give birth to babies with an excessive weight. Um, And yet if I had a pound for every time in an antenatal group, somebody said, oh, they've just told me that the baby's big. And they are worried. They're worried that it's going to hurt more. They're worried that they're going to have cesarean. Um, and if they're going into the experience worried, then, yeah, we know how that pans out hormones-wise. You know, it pre-frames their expectation. And, and therefore, again, at a deeply unconscious level, sets up um, various ways of thinking about the experience. And uh, this isn't... I mean, I. It sounds patronising, but this isn't rocket science, is it? You know, I remember as a student being with a midwife who palpated a woman's um, abdomen. And as she did it, she went, oh, big baby here. Yeah. You know, the implications was, you know, this baby isn't coming out or yeah. worse. You're not going to be vajazzling that anymore. You'll yeah. Have to, you'll, have to, you'll have to edit that. or Maybe you won't. Who knows? Yeah, so not edit. <laughs> but, you know, do you know, I mean, the implications and the frames of reference that are set up in someone else's unconscious mind, because in, hip, in, not, in, a, in a hypnotic sense, that's a post-hypnotic suggestion. Or, or as I would call it, a curse. Yeah, well, if you like. And probably where the whole tradition of curses came, rooted in the <laughs> unconscious mind. And that can work for us or against us. And when it comes to someone saying, you've got a big baby, we're going to scan it three or four times, using a method which is not exact late on in pregnancy, you know, what does that do to mm. the underlying confidence of a woman who um, is maybe going to be experiencing this for the first time? Um yeah. Um, as you were just saying about evidence, um, as you always say about evidence, not to be believed, this isn't the truth. No. Um, <laughs> what I find helpful is that when women in my groups say, I've been told I have a big baby and so I'm worried and, and people are kind of giggling and, oh, yeah, that's kind of that's smart, <laughs> uh, which is nice. I know in myself how often I've heard it said and then the baby hasn't been any bigger than average and here's this study it says the average birth weight of babies that were suspected to be large in the study was about seven pounds 11 ounces compared to the average birth weight of babies not suspected to be large which was seven pounds and one ounce now i can say there's this study that says this so do also take that on board um rather than which obviously i wouldn't anyway just going well your midwife's wrong yeah, well, it, yeah, in my experience of my colleagues, they're deeply compassionate people that these days have gone with very good academic backgrounds into an environment which is very stressful, very under-resourced, and they're doing the very best they can. So, you know, the time constraints mean that it takes a lot of skill to communicate all of these issues in a way that a woman can make an informed choice about. So the, the job of informing women is not going to be done solely by midwives. You know, it's where people like you come in. The social element of it as well. Well, uh, that was me and Karen. Uh, but we, above all else, love to hear your views. Don't hold back. Tell us what you think on Facebook, 
facebook.com slash sprogcast or twitter at sprogcast do you know we love being retweeted get retweeting maybe we'll give you a prize we've um got another interview for you now this is um our third year student natalie with her advice for you new students Hello, my name's Natalie Corden. I'm a current third year student at Canterbury Christchurch University in Kent. I'm a very positive person. I believe in positive midwifery and uh, physiological birth is something that I'm really, really uh, passionate about. I know that's the cliche word, passionate, but that is, that's the truth. Um, I founded a Facebook page called Normal Birth for Low Nuts with a fellow student, uh, Rachel Checkland, and I've just finished, um, I had hosted a conference called Time to Grow, a midwifery conference at my placement hospital, which was very successful. I'm currently the uh, England representative on the Royal College of Midwives Student Midwife Forum, and we're looking to our student conference in November, um, where I'm speaking about you guessed it, positive um, midwifery, but that's in the context of social media um, because I'm very, very um, keen to spread the word about social media and how um, impact it can have on your personal growth and your professional growth as you uh, continue your journey in midwifery. Well, welcome to Sprogcast, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so um, you're in your third year. What's been the best bit so far? Uh, oh... For me, everything, everything I do, everything I'm part of, you know, when I'm with women, when I'm, you know, sharing time with them, I, I love it. I love all of it. So I can't really say, oh, that's my highlight. I think, I suppose it was great getting um, uh, to be part of the RCM. That was a, you know, really uh, good moment to, to be elected by my peers. That was, that was really good. Um, and also the Time to Grow conference. Wow, that was a highlight. And meeting Mr. Um, Doctor, sorry, Dr. Michelle O'Donnell. Um, that was great. That was a great moment. So, how many births have you been at? Um, well, I've—I oh, don't like use the word delivered. I've—I've I've been um, at twenty-nine births that I've recorded for my um, documentation. So, twenty-nine births. I've been the midwife. Um, but obviously, I've I've seen lots more than that. I, before I trained to be a midwife, I was a, a maternity support worker, so I did lots of um, you know uh, facilitating being in, in in with women when they were having their babies. So I've seen quite a lot. Cool. And we we'd like to um, to consider our language here. So it's interesting that you don't want to use the word delivered. No, no, and I, I yeah, I don't like don't like that word at all. Especially when, you know, what we're doing is all language based, so you really have to think about it. Mark was saying about um have you seen in his book? I don't know if you've I've seen got it his book. I have perused it. I found it was very blokey, which oh, yeah. you know, yeah, but but blokey in a good way, not a bad way, because I think like it's it's very difficult, isn't it, to get things across. And I, I think he, I think he's captured that really well. But mm. yeah, language is really important. The way that we say things to people, you know, yeah. how it can be misconstrued and interpreted is, yeah, it's really important as well. So this is going to go out in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully, lots of brand new first year student midwives are going to listen. Okay. Um, have you got any top advice for them? Your lecturers will tell you to read, 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 and read. Um, but you need to find the reading that's good for you. Don't try to read something because somebody else is reading it or, you know, look for things that, you know, that feel 
good to you to read. So look at the different textbooks, look at the, in the different journals and find what you want to read because it's really tough going when people keep saying, oh, you, you should be reading. But really, you need to, in the first year, it's good just to find stuff that you like reading. What would you recommend as the best starter text? I liked all the little sort of essentials books. They were like really easy to read. Um, they're by um, Baston and Hall. They're just like little, little tiny little books. Right. So you can carry them around with you and just flick through them and have a little look. The big, big, big textbooks, they, they sort of tend to be out of date quite quickly. Mm. So they're really, they're, they're quite a big investment as well. They're like £45. Yeah. So you're probably better off going to the library for those and having to look at them in there. That is a useful tip. Thank you. Yeah, get to the library. Okay, it was lovely to speak to you, Natalie. And you're going to come and talk to us again next time as well and let us know how you're getting on. Yes, I will indeed. Thank you. All right, then. Great. Thanks a lot. Um, We've got a, a lovely new book um, from Pinter and Martin, The Very Small, Very Red, Whoosh by Katie Brook. What's this book for, Mark? Well, it's for, it's for birth partners, isn't it? And uh, it's so nicely produced. Uh, I think uh, Pinter have outdone themselves in terms of production. It's a lovely little red hardback book that fits into a sleeve. Uh, I'm thinking it's for the Christmas market, Karen. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe. And isn't it the case that uh, there is a baby boom in September because of all the people having sex at Christmas? Oh, fair comment. So maybe yeah. it'll be it'll really hit its sales peak in like February. Because I think that it's it, it's the sort of book a woman might buy to give to her partner as a way of telling him they're having Ka- a baby. Karen, Karen, do more people have, have sex at Christmas? I've heard that. Well, that's... Discussion <laughs> that partner. might not have been an evidence-based statement <laughs> go on i interrupted you i'm sure we can look at the statistics for how many babies are born in september compared with the rest of the year um i, I liked it in the sense that it's a, a, a physically appealing it's it's nice to hold little book um yeah. it's got some nice ideas in it um some good basic themes it's for me it's not enough oh, i would no. I w- that wouldn't be the only thing I'd want my partner to have read. I think it would be a nice gift to give someone, uh, a nice keepsake. Yeah, like a little souvenir. You can personalise it. You can write like the songs you want, which I it would have been useful to me because then I could have given birth listening to the songs I wanted, not the songs Pete wanted. When it arrived at home, um, obviously we're we're a, we're a bookie family and we liked opening a parcel of books. And my nine-year-old son immediately grabbed this and read it from cover to cover. Happily, didn't ask me anything about um, parent. <laughs> Um, I had a flick through it, passed it to my partner, he's a grown-up, um, and said, what do you think of this? And he felt that it was like a kid's book, which the content of it isn't, but the presentation is. I, I mean, I, I kind of understand where, where Pete's coming from on that, but uh, the content's good, the presentation's good, It'd be a lovely gift, and it is a good prompt if people have if people have read other things. I think perhaps what would make the perfect parcel for that new dad to be is um, Whoosh plus Men Love and Birth and Dean's book. Um, Dean from Daddy. Yeah, Nantle. he's really he's good on support. The Expectant Dad's Handbook. Yeah, that's a, that's a book that's full of great information um, from an organisation that's doing great work. Uh, with men so I've got a couple of other books that I'd like to mention they've been on my shelf for ages well actually one of them has which is The Food of Love by Kate Evans Um, I did see her speak um, I've seen her her speak twice 
And the second time she was promoting her other book, Bump, which sounded really good. And I ought to get a copy of that. Um, yeah. This is her Food of Love, which is about breastfeeding. She's a cartoonist. Um, yeah. And actually reading through it, I quite enjoyed it. Have you seen it at all? I have seen it. I've seen Bump as well. And I know Kate. And she's um, very passionate about birth, about everything she does. And the, the illustrations uh, in the book are excellent. And um, the way that she kind of in, encapsulates a thought and graphically, with, with few words, presents that thought as a whole, it, for me, is great in terms of learning. So I like her work, yeah. to be honest. It was a kind of a roller coaster of a read. She's she's almost stream of consciousness in places. I have to tell you that I do find some of the cartoons that compare the formula feeding mum with the breastfeeding mum a little bit judgy. Tends not to be my philosophy to separate mums into different groups and say this one's doing a much better job than that one. I, no, I get that. Women that make a powerful choice to formula feed, right, given all the evidence, need to be embraced, loved and supported, not vilified or, or put in a position where they feel uh, second class. Mm. And uh, that's really, really crucial to me. I know in, in, in my book where I talk about the risks of not breastfeeding, that's probably the only part of the book that has, has stirred up some strong feelings. I mean, I think it's a nice book. I think it's brilliant for like peer supporters and um, people who are yeah. interested in breastfeeding. I don't know if I'm convinced it's a useful book for a mother trying to do breastfeeding. There's no signposting in it at all to the various helplines and places, but it's incredibly comprehensive. It's got loads and loads and loads of stuff in it. So it's an interesting one to pick up. Um, the other book that I wanted to mention is Fit to Bust by Alison Blenkinsop. This has been out for ages and I haven't had my own copy um, until the point at which um, one appeared on my doorstep in the post sent by my grandmother-in-law. Oh, did you like it? I did actually, yeah. I didn't think I would. I thought I would find the songs a bit irritating. But if you, I mean, if that's just me. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm grumpy. Um, uh, don't don't have to tell me that. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> it's a beautiful celebration of breastfeeding, and it's got loads of interesting facts in it, and it's got a little bit of um, self-help stuff, and it's it's just a book by a woman who is passionate and deeply knowledgeable about breastfeeding. So. Again, one for people who are in the trade. Right, excellent. While, while we're on the subject, I know we've been going on a while here. Which, which book, you know, given that you're a breastfeeding specialist and stuff, which which, which book is a book for breastfeeding? Women? Absolutely, it's without rich. hesitation, the book I would give my best friend is Successful Infant Feeding by Heather Welford. Well, you lent that to me, and that book informed my writing. We've got some books to give away. Oh, some yeah. lucky people I mean, yeah um, and we asked for people to comment on the website now we got a lot of likes as well as comments um we got let me see one two three four five six seven eight comments um which cool. whose names i've written down on paper um we've got comments from jane louise natalie corden she's our third year midwife um anna right. milner kerry horn i know her um natalie turner Christopher, I've written Christopher Bovleet. Have I missed, have I spelt that wrong? I can't read my writing. Lena Duncan and good old Maddie McMahon. Um, pretty sure she doesn't need a copy of your book. She's in it. She's in it and she, I gave her a copy. Right, well, we've got Mia's book, Mia Scotland's um, Why Perinatal Depression Matters. And we've got Mark's yeah. book, which he's going to sign for us. I am. Um, and I'm going to tear up all these bits of this list so that we can do a, 
a draw. So this is happening live on air. It's excellent. Oh, I love that. Very... <laughs> real tearing happening in real time. We're going to pull out two of them. So first one I've got is Anna Milner. Yeah, um, yeah. And the second one is um, Maddie McMahon. Maddie. Maddie. Better give her Mia's book. Yeah. Anna gets yours. Yeah. Okay, so I'll give Anna my number uh, and I'll send. Also, can I ask you a favour? Yeah, go. I was going to ask if you would um, sign a copy for Lucy Joyce. Yeah, of course I will. Right. So we've got winners. Yeah. How do, how do you find time to read? Um, mostly I don't, but I've been on the train a lot lately because I'm doing a, um, a one module at level six at the University of Worcester on assessing practice. So basically wow. as part of NCT's quality standard kind of thing, you know, keeping the standards high, protecting our reputation yeah. and so on, um, senior practitioners train as assessors and we um observe other other practitioners working and give feedback and um support to improve any areas that need improvement and what have you and it's basically learning to do that and it's really really interesting i bet it is it's level six is ma isn't it um it well it's the third year of a degree it's that kind of level i've done one other module of the nct degree and i've got that i've got up to level five anyway as a breastfeeding counsellor, right. so the, I've done one other level six module, but I'm not going to be taking the full degree. Well, what are you what are you finding particularly interesting about the course then? The assessment theory is is fascinating. I didn't I thought it seemed a bit dry at first, um, but we've been learning how to mark stuff. Like it's not just right. putting ticks in the margin. You, there's there's so much more to it, and that's been really interesting. But what I particularly think is worth saying, and I'm saying it a lot at the moment, is look how how much NCT puts into protecting the quality of the service we provide. I can't speak yeah. on behalf of NCT, but I am proud of the organisation because I think we try so hard. We train our practitioners so thoroughly. Um, you know, you can't just do a two-day course and then be an NCT teacher. This is really, really very different to most of the other services out there. I, I would say it's almost unique. First of all, I can't imagine many other programmes have university accreditation. So to, to go through the process of accreditation at a university um, uh, means that the, the training is, is robust. Yeah. And, and it's ongoing. There's a lot of um, CPD. There is ongoing supervision. Um, you have to be assessed in your practice every three years. It's, you know, yeah, we, we try really hard to make sure that what we're doing is good. Very good. Always been, you know, since 1994, I've had involvement with NCT at one level or other. Always deeply impressed uh, with the, the service that they provide. So to be supported without a doubt and access to uh, that kind of, you know, antenatal preparation should be uh, expanded. Really. Yeah. Well, one of the things NCT did to expand it was introduce their essentials course, which is um, the yeah. slightly shorter and therefore um, less expensive course um and i've been doing those which is really nice for me because it means i get to talk about more than just breastfeeding um yeah. breastfeeding remains my one true love in this area yeah. um yeah. and really happily somebody from my last course agreed to tell us her birth story so oh. what we've got next is ashley um talking all about giving birth to her baby Hello, I'm Ashley. I'm a, a brand new mum of my lovely eight-week-old Sabrina. 
who is just fabulous absolutely amazing um i would like to say pretty much perfect in every way so ashley thank you so much for telling us your birth story it's the first one we've had on sprogcast we're really excited um what i wanted to ask you first is how you felt about the birth beforehand uh, well when i first got pregnant i was incredibly scared and actually looking at ways that I could get an elective c-section and sort of really really worried about it um, and then I started doing pregnancy yoga and uh, talking to other people who were pregnant who had had babies as well and listening to other birth stories and it started to instill sort of confidence in me that I could do it so over the sort of nine months that I was doing all of this, it really sort of helped me to believe that I was capable of doing it because, I mean, I really, really did at the start panic about it all and I never thought I'd be able to actually do it in the end. So that was quite useful. Um, but yeah, listening to people's positive and also the incredibly unpositive ones, the ones where it had all gone horribly wrong and just hearing about how sort of the hospital had been able to, you know, be there for quite a lot of people and help them through helped me as well. So it just sort of instilled this uh, belief in me that they could do it. So confidence in yourself and confidence in the people looking after you. Yes, yeah. So tell us about when things started for you. Um, so probably three days before in the evening, uh, between sort of oh, 11 and 1, I'd start to have sort of Braxton Hicks contractions. And they were sort of quite regular, which were probably every six minutes, lasting 30 seconds or something, and not overly painful. And then I'd fall asleep at 1 o'clock and the next day nothing would happen. And up until sort of the day that she was born, there were lots of jokes because it was um, our one year anniversary of getting married. And so we'd been having sort of uh, joking arguments about how I didn't want her born on our anniversary. And, and then of course it did. So we all went over to my in-laws house to have a barbecue for uh, our anniversary. And there was uh, my niece there, Nellie, who was only two weeks old. Um, and I sent Nick off to come back home because I'd forgotten something. And luckily it's only sort of ten minutes away. But in those ten minutes I went, I picked Nellie up and my waters broke. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was stood in my in-laws house surrounded by all of my in-laws family and my mum hadn't got there yet and my husband wasn't there. Oh. in the dining room holding this baby and my waters were breaking and I was just like oh <laughs> the most surreal thing that has ever happened and to be honest I think now I could probably tell my in-laws anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> they got me to go in so I had to call Nick and get him to hurry back home and he packed the car full of all the stuff we'd need and everything they didn't really examine me properly, they just did a swab and sort of the midwife looked at the fluid that was coming out and all sorts of things. And then just as we were waiting while she booked in the induction in case the contractions didn't start, 
um, they definitely did start. <laughs> um, and I think I was managing sort of maybe, I think I was at 3 and 15 minutes. So going from nothing to suddenly 3 and 15 minutes in the hospital. Mm. And the midwife of the, uh, when we were there said, no, it's not quite enough that you can stay in. We're going to send you home anyway. So we went back to my in-law's house to continue <laughs> barbecue. Why not? About five o'clock-ish, I think, I turned around to Nick and said I was in too much pain. We had to go to the hospital and get some painkillers. I was allowed to take some cocodamol and turn around to my in-laws and my family and said, look, it's very lovely to see you, but I'm going to go home now <laughs> and uh, sit in my own house and deal with this. So we came back home and uh, Nick sat there playing cat videos just silly cat videos um, on his tablet for me to keep me happy and to keep me going and he kept sort of trying to uh, give me massage and I kept shouting at him and he kept trying to get me to do all the different yoga poses I was meant to do and I kept shouting at him because I was just in too much pain and luckily I'd got a TENS machine so that was helping a lot uh, the only real issue I had with it was when the contractions got stronger, I would forget to turn the TENS machine up. And so I'd be sat there going, it's really painful. And he'd be going, have you turned it up yet? Oh, yes, yes, I'll do that now. Um, and so this sort of carried on until about, I think, half past eight, where it just got ridiculously painful. And I think, I, and at the time, my contractions were still all over the shop. I'd be having sort of maybe... Uh, ones that would last two minutes every oh, five minutes or something and then suddenly I'd have sort of three and ten minutes for about ten minutes and the hospital just kept saying until they were like three and ten minutes for an hour they wouldn't let me in. At one point he called up and they suggested that we filled the bath up um, with warm water so that I could sort of bend over and rest my stomach in it to sort of try to help with the warm sensation. That sounds like an interesting position. Yeah, it, it was uh, quite interesting because we went and we filled the bath up and suddenly realised that actually our bath's quite short so there was no chance I was getting anywhere near the water. <laughs> and at the point when that happened I did just sort of turn around to Nick and go, Nick, um, I really want to push. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so he went, oh, okay. Um, and then we had uh, the most horrific drive I've ever had in my life. So part way into Reading, I think we just got to the um, partner, Prospect Park. Uh, Nick turned to me and went, oh look, we're nearly here. At which point I was transitioning, so I wasn't particularly very nice to him. <laughs> I just turned around oh, and said, don't you lie to me, we are nowhere near the hospital. <laughs> And I don't think I've ever sworn as much as I have in that in that whole car journey. Um, so the whole time that we were going through, every time I was having a contraction, I was sat in the front with my seatbelt on. And I was using the handle to pull myself up off the seat so that I wouldn't be pushing in the car. And the whole time we're driving, Nick, as I'm having the contraction, he's just sat there going, please don't push in the car. I'm like, I'm not pushing in the car. <laughs> And I think we got there about yeah, it'd be half past ten we got in. Uh, eventually a midwife turned up and examined me and just sort of went, okay, so I can feel the baby's head. So we're not going to be able to give you any uh, extra pain relief uh, because it's just not going to do anything for you. So 
we'll get you to a room and uh, you can have gas and air. So they wheeled me through to one of their rooms on the Rushy Ward and I think it was their last available slot. Mm -hmm. And once in there they were there saying so we'll fill the bath up just in case, the pool up sorry, just in case uh, there's a chance that you do manage to make it in. And handed me over one of the gas and air pumps. And the first time I sucked on the gas and air I forgot I was meant to take it out of my mouth. So I think I was probably sucking on this for about five minutes or so. You must have been high as a kite. I, I, I had managed to convince myself that I hallucinated I'd already had the baby. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I took this out eventually as everything around the edges became really fuzzy and blurry and I took it off and Nick gave me a drink and I was like, oh, so you mean I haven't had the baby? Oh, okay then. <laughs> um, and... I think they managed to get, they obviously managed to get the pool filled up and were transferring me in. And at the point they were transferring me in, the midwife just sort of turned around and said, Ashley, you either have to get in this pool or have the baby on this step. Um, and I managed to sort of jump in, sit down, and then I think I was probably pushing for about 15 minutes pushing in the pool. So within the hour of getting into the hospital we'd had her um, and thankfully for the gas and air and for Nick because without Nick I wouldn't have been able to stay at home so long because mm. I couldn't remember to breathe or anything he was having to sit there and say Ashley you have to breathe and breathing with me um, and then when we got into the pool into the hospital and swapped from the TENS machine to the pool. There was sort of maybe three contractions where I didn't have the TENS machine, the gas and air, or the pool, and they were just horrendous. Yeah. And, yeah, so all of the midwives were incredibly attentive and very good. They uh, looked after me really, really well. Um, and, as I say, we had a completely natural birth, so the placenta was natural as well which was good um, and I only had a very small, small internal tear mm -hmm. as well which I'm quite proud of. <laughs> and so did, were you able to stay in the pool with her for a little while? Yeah so um, we got I think uh, we sat in the pool until after the placenta had been I think it was probably about 20 minutes we were in the pool with her then they got me out and transferred me to one of their sort of pretend beds in there. And uh, Nick had a bit of a cuddle with her and things. And then they got me to breastfeed her and give her a vitamin K uh, injection. Um, stitched me up and then they went off to make sort of tea and toast and didn't come back for, I think, about two hours which was just a bit ridiculous. So, we, I mean, we got our uninterrupted hour. Yeah. <laughs> nice to have a cup of tea, though. Yeah, it, was, it, it, it turned up, it was lovely. And so there wasn't a lot of blood loss either. Not that Nick would believe me, that it wasn't a lot of blood no. loss. No. Was he a bit freaked out? <laughs> he, was, he wasn't really freaked out. He was just more sort of like, I didn't expect it to look so much like a zombie movie. Right. <laughs> But yes, and uh, she was a 
a wonderful six pounds one ounce so a teeny tiny baby how do you feel now about your ability to birth your baby i think i won't tell nick this but i think i could do it again (laughs) it was completely and totally worth it brilliant that's lovely thank you so much that's okay it's always it's a, it's an honour always to listen to somebody's birth story, whatever it's like, and it's it's so nice to hear a positive one. And I think being able to share that, I mean, you know, we don't have a huge listener base, but it's it's such a positive, useful resource for people, as you found yourself when you were hearing birth stories before yeah. she was born. So thank you, really appreciate it. That's fine. That's the reason I always want to share it whenever I can. lovely you know karen i think we come to the end pretty much that's all there is for this episode of broadcast we we hope you'll join us for the next one which is going to be about twins or sleep or something depending on who we can get to talk to us we'll get one of the natalies to chip in again probably so if you have any questions or comments for them or us remember get in touch you can do that via Facebook or Twitter. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. Uh, Sprogcast is brought to you by the lovely people at Pinter and Martin who also sent me a big parcel of books last week. So I love them a lot. Pinterandmartin.com for all your great books about birth and parenting. Mark, as always, it's been a pleasure. Bye. Yay. Bye to you, Karen. Bye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Editing and production is by Karen with technical assistance from Pete. Find us on facebook.com slash sprogcast.